As a congregation, we've been working our way through the Ten Commandments with that um, theme, Be Holy for I Am Holy. We have a holy God, and God commands and desires that those who belong to him live a holy life as well. This morning, we turn to the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Last week, we learned from the first commandment that it was very important to God who we worship, right? No other idols, no other gods, nothing in the place of God. The second commandment deals with how God wants to be worshipped. It deals with graven images. Some people, some uh, Christian people and communities even believe that the cross should not be placed in the church. So that might be a good discussion to have around your table sometime because some say we should not worship Jesus through the cross. Let's turn to Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, and read these words regarding the second commandment, how God wants to be worshipped. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children... For the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now Moses is still on the mountain receiving these words from God. And 40 days have passed. And uh, the people are getting a little bit impatient, thinking, well, Moses gave up on them. You know, where is he? And they start to question if he's ever going to come back for the mountain. So some 40 days later, we turn to Exodus chapter 32. And we're going to be reading this passage this morning as a reader's theater to hear these, uh, this historical narrative. Follow along, if you wish, on Exodus 32. But hear the word of the Lord now 40 days later after Exodus 20 was given to Moses. These words, Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt... We don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them. Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from my commanded them, and have made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it, and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I have seen these people. 
They are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me, go so that I may, my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. He said, O Lord, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to wipe them off of the place, face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I have promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in fire. Then he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Aaron answered, Do not be angry, my lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go down before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them go out of control, and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, 
You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place that I have spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they had did with the calf Aaron had made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, as we turn to this, this narrative in Exodus 32, um, I've chosen to address it in, in a preaching style that, that's just taking the narrative and identifying some of the main characters in the story. Sometimes when you, when you read historical narrative, as we have here in the Old Testament, this is one good form that is used for preaching. Identify who the main characters are and, and help us to understand what's happening in this story. That being the case, I'm going to give some observations about the character of God, the character of Moses, and the character of God's people, and something we can all learn from understanding these characters. First of all, the character of God. Uh, this, this passage tells us, uh, Exodus 20 actually first, in verses 4 through 6, tells us that God is a jealous God. And what that simply means is that, that God is, is telling Israel, reminding Israel that we have an exclusive love relationship. The kind of love relationship that cannot be threatened in any way. I love you, you love me, we have a covenant agreement. And I get jealous whenever this relationship is threatened in any way. I'm going to guard it, I'm going to protect it, because we have this exclusive love relationship. Now, that's easy to understand, isn't it? My wife and I have been married for some 30-some years, and, and we have, as those of you who are married, an exclusive love relationship. Can you imagine my wife or, or your spouse coming to you and saying something like, well, you know, Jim, I still love you. In fact, you're still my number one love, and always will be. I'm going to honor the covenant of marriage. But I met somebody else over in Strax the other day, and we kind of got a conversation going. And Well, we've been having lunch once in a while and, and seeing each other. But I know it's going to be okay with you because we have an exclusive love relationship. And I'll just take on some other loves as well. You're still number one, but now I have a number two, and who knows, there could eventually be a number three. Now, would anyone in their right mind would say, yeah, that's okay. I love you so much, honey. Just go ahead if that's what you need. 
That's kind of what, what Israel is doing here. They had an exclusive love relationship with God. And they were saying, it's not that we don't love you anymore, God. We're just taking on some other loves and some other gods alongside of you. We have enough love to go around for everybody. God says, I'm a jealous God. I will not have it. That, you have to see how important this command is. God is guarding his love for his people and protecting it. No third parties allowed into this love relationship. We also read here about God's anger. Um, now, now it's Exodus 32, verses 10 and 11. It's not the kind of anger that, that is a bad anger. Sometimes we can get really angry with each other and at people. And often in that anger, we can say things we wish we wouldn't have said. Right? And the Bible says, be angry, but sin not. So you, there's, a, there's a sin of anger where you're not sinning, but there's, there's a sin of anger that says, listen, there, there are times when you can be angry, which is not a sin. And this is what God is talking about here when he says, I'm an angry God at times. I have this holy anger inside of me that's aroused when the jealousy thing comes out. And I get angry because of the person and the people that I love. And that's when a relationship is threatened. Now, the good news is, what does the Bible say about God's anger? Fast or slow? <laughs> God is slow to anger. And yet, he will become angry whenever his holy people act in a way which puts his holiness at stake. It angers him. God is angry. We also read about God's justice, and this is, has to do with unholy behavior. When his people sin, when the people that he loves sins and threatens that love relationship, God not only gets angry, but the justice has to be done. And sin has to be punished. Boys and girls, when, when you're naughty at home and your mom or dad or a grandpa or grandma, whoever may be taking care of you, needs to say or do something to you because they sin, do they say something like, oh, you don't have to go sit in the corner. I'm going to give you extra ice cream tonight because of what you did. It's okay with me because I love you so much. Any of you live in a home where there's, there's no punishment? You do that because you love them. God's justice says when my people sin, when there's an unholy behavior as Israel was doing here, I need to step in because my name and my reputation is at stake. And justice says, my perfect justice says, they need to be punished. All sins have to be punished. And then we read this story, which we sometimes have to explain to people and even try to understand ourselves, where, where God, through Moses, sends people to the camp, and 3,000 people were killed that day. These were brothers, sisters, friends, neighbors, taken by the sword. They were killed because of their sin. And then, and then later in this chapter as well, we read about, and God sent a plague and more people died. Sins must be punished. God's perfect justice demands it. And, and just for sake of words, and God will punish every person whose sins are not covered when he returns. More about that in a moment with Jesus Christ. Something I don't want you to miss as well is this, this matter of, and here's the, the theological term, God's immutability. That's one of the attributes of God. It simply means, as, 
as Malachi says, Malachi 3, verse 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. I'm a changeless God. But it's important to understand when we hear that here and throughout Scripture, God is talking about his character. I am a changeless God. My character will never change, simply meaning I will always be loving, I will always be merciful, I always will be kind, I always will be faithful. That part of me never changes. But notice in this passage, Exodus 32, verse 14, something does change in God. It's not his character, but he changes his mind. He changes what he's going to do. God had determined, right, if you read the story, Moses, let's just destroy all of these people. I don't want them anymore. I'm so sick and tired of their unholiness. Moses, let's you and I just kind of start over with a new group of people. That's what God is saying here. And Moses steps in and says, oh, wait a minute. That's not like you. That's not your character. And what will the nations think if you do that to your people? They're going to think, oh, this, this God brought them out of Egypt so that he could kill them in the desert. God, because of the intercession of Moses, changes his mind. He changes a course of action that he was going to take, that he was determined to take. Now think about that. When we get into situations in our lives where it's inevitable, that it appears inevitable that something is going to happen. Sometimes we can just get into the habit of saying, okay, you know, if, if that truly is God's will for my life, because this was going to be, at, for this moment, God's will for Israel, Moses intercedes. Think about what that does and how it affects your prayer life. God's character never changes, but if something comes into your life, which, which appears inevitable by anybody and everyone you talk to, and you seem like, well, this is the way it's going to be, as long as there is life or as long as that situation is there, you can continue to go before God and pray to a God who can may change a course of action in your life because that's who he is. He doesn't change his, he still loves you, but part of his character here was he's acting in mercy. He has to be true to his character. And God may be merciful to you or to me when there's something going on in our life that we don't like or we don't like where things are going. Well, I encourage you, you pray to God like Moses did. Lord, it appears to me that, that this is what you want to happen or are going to allow to happen, but I know you can change it if you so desire. His character doesn't change it, but his actions may change depending how we, how we pray to him and seek his favor. Now the character of Moses, this man of God, we first of all recognize that Moses is a mediator. There was a problem. Israel had sinned. They, they were unholy. They turned their backs on God. They were no longer living as God wanted them to live. That was the problem. They needed a mediator because there's God on the other side ready to destroy them. And if Moses didn't step up, they would have been destroyed. Moses steps up as a mediator, a go-between. It's kind of like today an arbitrator, not quite the same but close, where he wants to make things right with God and with his people. Also recognize, almost in the same light, but a little bit different, that this, how, how Moses uh, practices intercessory prayer. He, he seeks to make atonement for the people. Exodus 32, verses 11 to 13, he says, Lord, first intercession, he has for them, turn from your anger, do not destroy them. What will the nations think? And you're not really like that, God. That isn't you. Intercessory prayer. Lord, change your mind in this. Exodus 32, verses 30 to 32, Moses even goes on to say, almost serving as a Christ kind of figure, 
uh, foreshadowing Christ. He says, Lord, if somebody's got to die, let me die for them. Wow. Take my life. Take me out of the book of life. Now, this isn't the book of life that, that our names are in, those who belong to Jesus that can never be taken out. Most believe this is a book of life that said, well, these are the people who are living, and there's another book that says these are the, the, the people who have died. Take me out of the book of life. Take my life for the sake of my people that they may live, interceding on their behalf. As you get into Exodus 33 and 34, you find Moses, especially in Exodus 33, that they have this tent of meeting. And you read there that because of the position that God gave him, Moses was allowed to go into that tent of meeting and meet God one-on-one. -on -one, and he would intercede on behalf of his people. Since committed, whatever else it might be, he interceded on behalf of his people. And part of that intercession in Exodus 33, when God was still obviously angry at how Israel had responded and, and, and were living unholy lives, where God had said, you know, Moses, great, things are done now. I'm, I'm, we're, we're back in good order, pretty much in good order. But you know what? As you go forward into Canaan, into the promised land, with all these chosen people of yours, let me tell you something. I'm not going with them. Read about it, Exodus 33. You go with them, lead them, but I'm out of here. I do not want to lead these unholy people into their promised land. I will not go with them with you. Moses intercedes. And again, in Exodus 33, he goes through a number of reasons why God should and why we need you to go with us. And God, again, the, the changeless God, changes his course of action and decides, due to Moses' intercession, that I will go with you and lead you forward. When I was reading this, this section of Exodus 32 and considering Moses, this, this man of God, the, the mediator, the intercessor, you cannot help but think of the life of Jesus Christ and how Moses surely was foreshadowing the Son of God who would come. If you read through the book of Hebrews, it's chapter 3, 4, 9, 10, and, and there, we read about there's, there's, uh, that Jesus would come, and it says there, first of all, regarding Moses, is that one would come in the name of Jesus who was less than Moses, not as important with Moses, equal with Moses, no. One who was superior to Moses. That was a huge statement. Because Moses was the big deal over all these years. Now someone comes in the name of Jesus who said who is greater than Moses. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, we read, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died and has ransomed to set them free from the sins committed from the first covenant. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, that being Jesus Christ. Someone superior to Moses. Jesus not only as mediator, but Jesus also serves as the one interceding for us, the great intercessor. The Bible talks about Jesus' intercession and his work regarding the atonement. Romans 8 verse 34 says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised is at the right hand of God. And what is he doing at the right hand of God? He is interceding for us. Even uh, Mark prayed uh, regarding one of the question and answers in one of our confessions of the catechism. Question and answer 49 says... What are some of the benefits of the ascension? If, 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 since Jesus returned to heaven, how does that benefit you? This is one of them. 
we have an advocate in the person of Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God, one who pleads our case. I think sometimes we forget about this. Whenever we forget to plead our case when it comes to sin or asking for forgiveness or for God to show us favor on us, we have a Savior in the person of Jesus Christ who died, rose again, ascended into heaven, sitting at the right of hand, now acts as our lawyer, pleading our cause every single day. And that's something to praise God for. And you should say amen for it. We have a God who's pleading our case every single day, right in God's presence. Very similar to Moses' tent of meeting, and Moses and God had this, this intimate prayer-type relationship. The character of God, the character of Moses, and finally, the character of God's people. And this shouldn't surprise us, because we get this, these next few things that I'm going to talk about, because we are God's people today. First of all, the impatience that we have with God. Forty days have passed, and probably if we were part of that camp or... Forty days have passed, something's wrong, Moses maybe died, where's God, where's Moses, we're moving on. And so they get together and they do this unholy act of having Aaron shape this, this God. In fact, you should understand this Baal was, was not just uh, a foreign God. They were worshiping Yahweh through this golden calf. That was the sin. It was their representation of God, just as Baal in Egypt was a representation to the gods of the Egyptians. Now they were shaping their God into this image to say, now we will worship our God, Yahweh, through this image. Blatant sin against God. Second commandment. So Israel takes matters into their own hands. Who knows if Moses is ever going to come back? We, we get this because, in fact, for some of you, maybe you're going through it right now, you're waiting on God for something in your life that you've been praying for or for God to take action on your behalf. And you're just waiting and you're waiting and you're praying and you're waiting and you're praying and you're waiting for God to step up and to step in. And up to this point, whatever it might be, God has not. And that's where the psalmist speaks often about waiting upon the Lord, right? Psalm 40, I believe, the first three stanzas. I, I, waited, I waited patiently upon the Lord for him to answer me, to hear my cry. The psalmist says, now he did in this case. But you know how difficult it is to say, God's going to answer my prayer to give me what I think that I need. But I keep waiting and I'm not hearing him or he's not responding. And so we too can take matters into our own hands and try to change the course of what our life is supposed to be when God has already laid out a plan because we don't like the plan maybe necessarily that we're going through. Someone once said, God is never late. We're just impatient. And it's so true, just like Israel. We also read that God's people were stubborn as a mule. There's no better way to say it. I don't know, how many, anybody have a mule on their farm? Oxen, maybe? Stubborn as a mule. Israel, Exodus 32, verse 9, were obstinate and difficult to lead. And you will find that term stiff-necked and stubborn throughout their, 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 their journey through Canaan into the Promised Land. And not only that, all the way up when you have uh, the religious people, the Pharisees, who they thought were that tight and close with God, where, where the writer uh, in the New Testament writes, 
in Acts, I believe, chapter 7, Stephen says you were a stiff-necked people, just like your forefathers were. Not willing to be led, difficult people to lead. Everybody wants to kind of go their own way. And we can be, don't get on Israel too quick about this because we can do the same thing. Our life is going in a certain direction and we may not like where it's going. And so rather than trusting God who knows our life from, from, from birth to death, we may take matters into our own hands so that we can have our life go the way we want it to go. And then we begin to prone to wander away from God. Leaving God behind. And unlike us, God is so patient with us when he does that. So patient with Israel. But he had said, even Isaiah prophesied, right? Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone where? Not to church, right? Astray. We followed our own way. Prone to wonder. Interesting, you'll find this Exodus 32, when these people shaped this image and called it Baal, you'll find the same story very similar story in 1 Kings chapter 12 with one of the kings. In fact, almost exact terminology. Read that sometime today and, and see how those two uh, intertwine with each other. Now, one, I, wanna, I don't want to leave this without mentioning regarding the character of God's people. There was one good positive characteristic we find in this story. Not all of them, but one of the tribes, uh, which is why God, I think, just blessed the tribe in, in so many ways, is the, the, the Levites. Because Moses comes down, you know, he's angry. You know, the, the tablet's not there. Done, over. And Moses comes in with this challenge in Exodus 32, verse 26, when he says, listen, whoever is for the Lord, now a decision has to be made. Whoever is for the Lord, for God's holiness, step forward. And can you imagine this? We can't imagine it. You can't even put on their sandals to try to get this and see what's going on. He says, listen, if you are for the Lord, come to me. Take your swords, go through the camp, and kill your brother, your sister, your child, your friend, your neighbor. Kill anyone who does not step forward and repent of their sin. And we read, of course, as a result of that, 3,000 of their family and friends and neighbors were killed by their own hand. You say, how cruel. But remember, God's holiness here. This was a big deal. This was kind of the first time they were going to be tested with these commandments. And if God was light here, he would have to show lightness later. He makes it very clear. That is an unholy act when you make an idol and try to serve it through me. And you need to understand that. And such unholiness will not be tolerated. 3,000 of those killed. Now, some believe, and I didn't mention Aaron as part of these characters, but since Aaron was a Levite, most scholars believe that he was part of the Levites that came forward because he himself was a Levite, and that God would bless him as he becomes a high priest for them as well. I found it interesting, I think it was Luke chapter 14, verse 26, the relationship this has to do with Jesus calling us to be his disciples, because we read about here what, what Moses commanded of the people to do to those who weren't following him. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, if anyone comes after me and does not, now this takes some explanation, but not today, another message, but does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yet even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That's what's going on here. God says, Are you for, am I your number one priority or does family take priority over your life? 
Am I your number one priority? Whoever wants to follow me, Jesus says, they cannot love their father or mother or son or daughter or brother or sister more than they love me. If they do, they cannot and will not be my disciple. I talked to a preacher a while back, and I read some stuff that he was writing, and he was of the mind that, you know, we live in the, this uh, 2022, and in fact, probably it's okay if we just take that, that, that first covenant, that Old Testament, just kind of, well, like we have some of us that at home, I just have the New Testament in in my car, and I just have the New Testament by my bedside, because I like reading the New Testament better than the Old Testament. And, and this preacher was pretty much advocating, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. And we don't have to waste our time reading those stories, because that was the Old Covenant. Jesus has come now and fulfilled all of that. We can just study the New Testament. And I want to show you this morning in closing how that's anything and nothing to do with, everything to do with what God says what the Old Testament is for. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in closing, I want you to hear these verses, these 11 verses, where God is warning Christians in the New Testament from Israel's history. This is why you have to read the Old Testament. This is why you have to read the historical narratives and understand these stories. Because they were given to us to learn something. And this is what God wants us to learn this morning regarding them. And now specifically with Exodus 32. Listen. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, now speaking way back, Israel's time, that our ancestors were under the same cloud, and they all passed through the same sea. They were all baptized into Moses, into the cloud in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. You see there already Christ in the Old Testament here. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered throughout the wilderness. Now, he says, listen. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. There, there is that reference back to Exodus 32. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, and here's another time, not only 3,000, but in another time, 23,000 people died because of that. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So we read these stories. We seek to understand the character of God and the character of, our, of ourselves in these stories. They're there to warn us. This can happen to you if you do not see me as a holy God and seek to be my holy people because you will be punished in some way at some time for your sins unless you step up and repent. So keep reading the Old Testament. No, don't just fall in, love with the, fall in love with the whole word of God and see how they do relate one to the other. And you will be living within the will of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Sometimes some of these stories in the Old Testament, we scratch our heads and, and, and even wonder how such a holy God 
can act this way. As we will learn, a, a, a God who tells us to worship him alone, and as we've learned, a God who wants no other objects before him to be worshipped, a, a God who's going to say, uh, do not blaspheme my name. And a God who eventually says, do not kill and murder, and yet we find here a God who does. Help us to understand your justice, your mercy, your anger, your jealousy, and help us to live lives in such a way that we learn from these stories because we know that you do not change. And the same God who punishes, the same God who, who is jealous, the, the, the same God whose justice needs to be met with the punishment of sin now comes to us and we praise you that unlike Moses who did not die for his people in accordance with your will, you allow Jesus to die for us so that we will not be punished for our sins. No matter how many times we are prone to wonder, to leave you behind or try to go ahead of you or, or to try to change our lives in a way that's not meant for us, whatever it might be, that we can learn to wait upon you and that we can praise you each and every day of our lives as we seek to be holy because we have a holy God. In Jesus' name we pray in thanksgiving for the remission of our sins. Amen.